Welcome back to the Master Mentors podcast. It's been a while. We've been incredibly lazy. Uh, it's been quite a busy few weeks, but now we are we are back with vengeance with three recordings this week, which are all set to be pretty epic episodes. I am joined by all four musketeers this week. Uh, we have the additions of James musketeers. and Ryan, and Lucy <laughs> with me as well. Uh, and we're about to do 21 questions with James and Ryan, so they better be prepared. <laughs> Luke, how are you? Yeah, I'm good. I'm good. And I think Cal's, uh, I'd say to say we've been lazy is a bit unfair. Busy. <laughs> no, but no, yeah, it's been a busy few weeks. And, uh, obviously, with the planning of the seminars and stuff, but it's, um, yeah, it's going to be an exciting year. So, cool stuff. Anyway. Onto the juicy stuff. James well, and Ryan. Let's do some introductions first, yeah. So, uh, considering James is the oldest one, we'll do Ryan first. <laughs> you had to drop that in there, didn't you? <laughs> By a long way. Ryan, give us a, a brief introduction of who you are and uh, yep. your life story. The whole life story. Everything. <laughs> um, so, my name is Ryan Hook. um and so i've been working my 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 main kind of business is one-to-one at the moment um that's very much where my career has been focused so far um just on the gym floor uh training people one-to-one um and i'm now kind of breaking into the online um and have been privileged to join these three awesome guys here um and kind of just looking forward to developing the online side of things now. Amazing. Pleasure to have you on board, sir. Yep. James, how long, how long do you need? <laughs> how many yeah. um, parts of my career do you want to cover? So I've been uh, PTing for 12 years. Oh, yeah. Think about that. Nearly more than Ryan's age. Yeah. <laughs> that is my age. <laughs> Within that, um, had six years at LA Fitness and then had another six years at a well-known facility, which will be unnamed, (laughs) which ran their education um, for the three, four years that it did run um, and very much looking forward to continuing to education with uh, these two geniuses and um, yeah, just keep, keep pushing forward really with work. Uh, done a hell of a lot of hours on the gym floor over the years. Uh, at one point, was pushing 50, 60 hour weeks. Um, but now, just transitioned to a fair bit more online, small amount of PT, um, but then giving myself enough time to sort of develop the education side of stuff. Currently, doing a good bit of studying out in the States. So, trying to get over a little bit of jet lag at the moment because I was in Oklahoma last week, um, but it hadn't hit, hit us too hard. Yeah. Any any more info you want there on guys? What's your favourite colour? What's my favourite colour? <laughs> Orange. <laughs> yeah. Good stuff. No, it's uh, you, you, both of you will be incredibly valuable assets and parts of the business. So both me and Luca, delighted to have you on board. Thank you, Thank sir. You. Pleasure to be here. Anything else, Luke? Let's crack on. Let's do this. Right, so this is supposed to be mechanics related. Most of the questions that were sent in were completely irrelevant to what we're actually trying to speak about, so thanks for that. Um, 
Let's think about the mechanics of eating food, something like that. Maybe we yeah. can the first question that was sent in was is there a problem with eating only three protein sources during prep so uh in terms of how that influences squat mechanics yeah. <laughs> <no>. <laughs> um all right let's start with something juicy so uh all right let's let's throw this one out on the floor to start with thoughts on keeping the, the exact question is thoughts on keeping active range always slash full range of motion so let's start to define active range and what we define as full range and potentially passive range etc james you're up well, i think when we're looking at active range we almost need to understand within exercise active range is the full range we're going to go into and the full range is the active range the, the two sort of cross into nice and depending on how far you're in with the workout, whether you're warmed up, whether the nervous system's fully active, depending to say that active range may increase or may change as we go through the workouts. Um, but at, at no point do we really want to comp or go through that, especially if we're under load. And this is, I think, probably even more the case if we're, we're close to or near to a closed pack position within a joint. So if we say, for example, if we're near maximal lumbar extension, um, and we're doing an abdominal crunch or something, just for an example, we wouldn't want to go past what is the active range there because we're getting into that, that maximal taut position where the ligaments are maximally taut there, the potentially the passive structures are holding that joint in place in, in its integral position. Um, so there's something like in them closed pack positions or that, or that locked out position through certain joints, that's the time when we'd never want to ever exceed that active range, but there are certain other movements where potentially we could push towards that if it's under control, if there's minimal momentum or inertia coming into play, um, then maybe we can go there. And if it is sub-maximal as well, because understanding in day-to-day -day movement, we potentially are going to go into these passive range. Um, so if we're working with general pop type clients at some point in time within their programming, we may need to implement something that's going to teach the skills they've got to do day to day um, under control and maybe working near the end range movements or near the extremes of range. But if it's in a loaded movement, then never ever are we going to go past what is the active range because for me, the active range is the full range of movement. Mm -hmm. um, I think it's understanding as well that an active range for, say, for instance, a pressing movement. Um, we'll be looking at a number of things. So we'll be looking at the available movement we've got through the shoulder joint, through the glenohumeral joint. But then it's also potentially looking at, well, what do we want to use when we're doing a pressing movement, potentially obviously the pec muscles. So someone might have a lot more range there and they still be in active range, but they're not going to use the chest to push out the bottom of the movements. So it depends. Like when we're looking at active range, it's like, well, can the muscles we want to use actively pushes out and that may be nowhere near their joint end range of movement so they may have um huge amounts of movement through the shoulder but we're not actually getting near anywhere near um i say their, their end range of movement in a pressing exercise yeah so that's plenty where there maybe the a full range would be completely different to the active range we're not even going near in that active range in that movement mm -hmm. 
I, I, I think that was awesome. And I'll add that um, I did a post on this on Saturday. Yeah. Um, or and, and talking about how active range is subject to change. And, and, you know, we may be presented with individuals and those that know how to assess active range, um, which, you know, if you've done RTS, you'll know if you've done some of the courses that James and Cal previously taught them at their previous gym, you'll know if you've done some of our practical stuff, you'll know. Um, you may be presented with individuals where you have like a discrepancy between certain like sides. So that, you know, in the case of the of the bench press, your pressing movement situation that James said, you may have their, you know, their right side shoulder extension is less than their left side. And you can in that situation you've got to understand that yes your active range is is restricted and that's you know you can change that would you want to yeah if you are able to change it would you want to then load it maximally in that position again probably not but you understand that you know that there's a you know active and passive ranges are different and there's quite often a big difference in certain individuals between how large their active range, like the, the, the difference between their active range and their passive range. And in some cases it can pay to kind of get those guys as close to each other as possible. And that's generally going to come with strategic strengthening of those tissues over time, which gets quite complicated, but it's um, definitely worth considering that some people may initially present with an active range that looks very short compared to other people's and, and that may change over time. So it's, yeah, it's not a uh, it's not a static thing. So if you could give one, a couple of take home points for someone to be able to identify the active range of a certain tissue or joint, what would you be looking for? Well, it's like if you were defining active range, you want to define it as the range of motion that your nervous system has control of. So yeah. you know, if if you if you can move into a position actively. Um, and you can't get any further the range you've just moved into is, is what you consider your active range so if you were in a pressing scenario you would you know set up you could just set up in a seated position and mimic the lowering portion of a bench press you know imagine you're holding a bar out in front of you and bring your arms back as far as you can without any compensation for your shoulders and stuff like that and and that will be you know, as far as you can get is what you consider your active range that's when you may see a difference between right to left depending on the individual um and but the the range you're presented with there is what you can what you would then work through essentially yeah yes yeah just from a very very simple point of view um if anyone's not aware the active range is the range you can get to without a load pushing you there yeah yeah and hence the like your nervous system has control over so like if i was you know if i could actively pull my arms back to the point where you know if I had a barbell in my hand, it would be two inches from my chest. If I was then in a loaded position on a bench press, that bar, the weight of that bar could push me down to the point where the bar is touching my chest, but we now know I'm in a passive range. So, yeah, that's quite a good way of looking at it. Yeah. And I think that whole kind of assessments thing is one of the most valuable takeaways that people can, can take away from that in terms of you are, like, this is what we're doing every day. We're going into the gym and we're performing exercises and we need to understand how to assess ourselves and assess what range we actually should be going through. Um, so yeah, I think that's one of the main things that people can 
take away, but go and explore more of and learn about because um, that is ultimately the, the thing that's going um, to depict whether you're able, actually able to apply it or not. Boom. That was good. I mean, the, the biggest take, like what you guys will see today is pretty much every question that's been asked, the answer is going to essentially come down to it depends. <laughs> Because what we're dealing with is you know, individuals and everyone has a unique structure. Everyone's going to have a unique uh, you know, neuromuscular setup that's going to dictate active ranges and, and how they would set up in an, in, a, in an exercise. And so you can't have these blanket you know, prescriptions to, to everyone that, that apply to everyone, which, which, for that, which is why this is hard, it's hard to do this sort of thing over a podcast. And when you're in a scenario where you can explore this stuff you know, on the gym floor, you you that will become very clear that exercises we, you know, in, we need to be considering every individual in the exercises we set up, which is something we don't do or most people don't do. Anyway, next question. Um, let's, let's, I know that you were quite passionate about the answer for this one. And I think it's actually been sent from one of your clients. Um, it's not really a question. It's more of a demand. <laughs> I command you, <laughs> tell everyone how dumb it is to put plates under toes on RDLs. So elevating the, the toes or the front of the foot whilst performing um, loading through hip flexion. Hmm. Discuss. So this is like, yeah, this is one I'm, I'd say I'm passionate about. It's just it's something I've... Quite a lot though, like this is pretty common yeah. as well. And, it, and it's grounded in people feeling something and assuming you know that more is is taking place in terms of the stimulation to the tissue and um when you consider so basically any people will have done this they'll have been doing an rdl variation or some you know hip hinge variation and they'll lift their toes up and they'll be like wow i feel like there's something stretching behind my behind my knee and that that must be my hamstring sweet i must be doing more um I must be lengthening them more and therefore getting more stimulation in them. Something's going on. And then you consider the, the anatomy of the hamstrings and like they all share that, that, you know, common origin in the, you know, the issue of tuberosity at the, in the top of the hip. And then you have the, you know, what three and a half hamstrings, like biceps, femoris, long head and short head will insert onto the, um, Fibula, and then you have the semitendinosis, semimembranosis, which come medially onto the uh, like medial side of the tibia. But the um, when you, <laughs> you you we therefore know that the hamstring crosses the hip and the knee. If we if, and I'll get you know, people listening can do this. If you lock your leg out now, um, doesn't matter what position you're in. Keep your hip in your in your knee still and then dorsiflex your foot which is essentially what you're doing by putting a, a plate under your toes there's no change in length that's occurring in the hamstrings because we know they don't cross the ankle so th there's something else that's happening and when you consider the structures that no one else no one tends to consider which is the nerve structures we look at the sciatic nerve and that basically <laughs> comes down you know that entire nerve chain starts at the top of the head comes down back of the hip back of the leg under the foot and what what's happening is when people are in that position like if we want to maximally lengthen the sciatic nerve we need to be in a position of 
hip flexion, spinal flexion, cervical flexion, dorsiflexion. And, and so they're basically loading this sciatic nerve in a, in a much more lengthened position, which in terms of hamstring recruitment, it, is, it does two things. So one, it doesn't affect like output through the hamstrings, potentially down-regulate it because we know that if you maximally lengthen the nerve, you're you know, increasing the likelihood of triggering some neurogenic inflammatory response, which is going to down-regulate force output within a tissue. And if people are clear on that, listen to our podcast with Jacques Taylor. We did two episodes with him and he covers that in there. Um, and then we also know that if we elevate our toes in that situation, we're actually shifting our center of mass to the point where th- th- we'll actually be creating less of a moment arm towards the hip with, with, if we're doing a barbell RDL variation. So you're actually going to mean that mechanically you're actually doing less work in, in your hip extensors. So it's kind of a silly thing to do. And it is grounded in the, oh, this feels like I'm doing something. So it must be, you know, must work. And it's the same, like if, if people put their arm out to the side and imagine they're at the bottom of a dumbbell fly and then they've, you know, flex their hand, not try and touch the back of their forearm with their knuckles. So basically flex your, your hand back or extend your hand, the, um, or wrists, I should say, um, you'll feel a similar nerve sensation. Um, and that's essentially doing the same thing it's not actually a very healthy thing for your nerves to do, especially in loading them. So I would, I would advise people to approach that one with caution. Um, but that should clear up that by putting plates under your toes, you're not actually doing anything for your hamstrings. You're probably a increasing the likelihood of causing some sciatic nerve issues down the line and b actually mechanically causing your hip extensors to do less work. Done. Pretty comprehensive. Uh, Does everyone agree with that? <laughs> yes, Luke. Nice. No, that's that question. What we got, Cal? Uh, what was it? Mm. No. What about James? Path or something? Yeah, oh, yeah. Uh, effects. So, um, effects. Effects of arm path degree of abduction when training the chest. So I think this is something that a few, I say coaches out there, um, I think have almost got wrong because they've felt when the arm sort of maximally abducted, so basically it's out at 90 degrees to the torso, it's gonna, in theory, they've said that improve the contraction of the pec or improve the ability for the pec to work. Um, but the number one thing we need to look at, as I've spoken about previously in some of my posts and say everyone thought I spoke about, is, is joint integrity. So we've got to find that stable position first before we think about maybe lining the fibers up, um, lining maybe sort of the direction of um, sort of the load up with where we want to get. We've got to try and find a, a locked in, a stable position. And generally that is going to be not in a maximally abducted position. So whether the elbow is going to sit slightly below the shoulder or slightly underneath that, and you're going to be able to create a bit more tension sort of posteriorly, sort of behind the pec muscles and behind the shoulder, um, because it's membrane that everything that's going on around the shoulder joint is almost a tug of war, and the pec's trying to 
pull the humerus forward. And if that hasn't got the opposing structures to lock it in place, then it's not going to be able to maximally produce force. So it's trying to find a position where we're locked in and, and locked in and stable. And what I think has previously potentially been taught is that when the elbow is maximally abducted, that it's creating a, a bigger moment arm to the shoulder and to the pec. But just we need to understand that the moment arm is the humerus, so is the upper arm. Um, and what's actually happening is the, the axis is, is changing as we adjust the shoulder positioning. Um, and obviously, say that axis is always going to be, say, 90 degrees um, to, the, to the humerus. So as we drop the elbow down, the axis has changed a little bit, and that moment arm is always, always, the hum always the humerus. So that's never changing, however much we almost tuck the elbows in and lock them in. Um, so it's, it depends on the person. Everyone's very individual in terms of that position um, that they feel locked in and stable. But I say that the key thing is laying, well, where can we produce the most force from? What feels nice on the shoulder? Where can we sort of retract and pull back and lock in um, from all the posterior muscles so we can create the most, most force output? Um, and then you could start to maybe look at positioning-wise through the sternum angle and the pec fibers and the ability for the pec to produce force. Um, and if, say, the arms in a different positioning, then that could eventually affect the position of the sternum and the position we can get into through there. But that's something that's very hard to probably describe um, and visualize just on a podcast. Mm -hmm. So I think that the main thing, the simple takeaway is, well, what is the most stable position? Really, is, is finding that um, and then really trying to work, work from there. And the, the secondary takeaway is come to our practical <laughs> and then we can explain the <laughs> the deeper things that need looking into but there's gonna be people that are listening to this who go oh that's yeah that's, that's bullshit you know people there's people that you know bodybuilders have trained for years and they they get you know to the bottom of a bench press and that's full range of motion and blah, 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 you know bro science and what people have got to understand is this is like the advancement of exercise that's inevitably always going to have come and you know, there was a time when the smartest minds in the world thought thought that the earth was flat, and then it turned out that was that was a lie. They you know it basically their their knowledge expanded, and that's you know people that are going to kind of poo poo this sort of information. Understand that you're shooting yourself in the foot when there's people out there that are teaching it, and actually this stuff is like pretty hard to argue with, and um, it will it will save your body in the long run. Because when you take this sort of stuff, you know, the stuff James has talked about into account, you're going to be able to finish this, you know, the part of your life devoted to building tissue and putting forces through your joints and shoulders in this case, and then actually be able to live the rest of your life probably without loads of chronic pain because <laughs> you haven't battered it. Yeah. So, yeah. Right. I think being the old man of the group, <laughs> having lifted now for over 20 years, Ryan, how old are you? <laughs> 35. <laughs> so, yeah, I've been lifted for 20 years and way over half of them years doing things that put my joints in compromised positions. Mm. And now I have got a lot of niggles and injuries that I need to work around because of what I did in the early years. Um, so it's just because of bro science or a lot of guys who are big or their bodies can handle certain positions and certain loads are doing some moving doesn't mean that 
they're optimal for us to do. And like, the end goal really is to be able to be in shape when we're 40, 50, 60 years old, not just to stay in shape for a few years in our 20s and then fuck our bodies up and not be able to maintain it. Mm. Um, so anything, as say, with the position here, it comes back to joint health. Joint health is key. And then we can focus on optimal muscular um, output or force output. Mm. I think there's, there's definitely a correlation, especially when I used to coach more on the gym floor and see more bodies. There's definitely more of a, a greater correlation between people that are going to be creating that most extreme degree of abduction through the chest press and potentially increasing proprioception there in terms of feeling the pec, but like the ability for them to manage the glenohumeral joint and run into issues with niggles and injuries and stuff is, is pretty common when you look at a pressing movement in that capacity. Cal, what would you say about yourself firsthand? Because I remember... I used to be that person as well. Yeah, you used to be that person, didn't you, where you were in that maximally abducted position? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, it was like, there, there would be to a point where when I start, when I, I wasn't very uh, strong for a long time, obviously, as you know, James, when I, when I dieted. And then it was only at the point where I started to take my body weight up and increase my strength that all these issues started to occur. And obviously my, my execution, when I first like properly started to pursue training was like, if I, if I was going to chest press, then it would be in that maximally abductive range. But the load was light enough for that to not cause any issues and i wasn't applying progressive overload as soon as i started to have to apply more force in that range things started to to, to not go my way uh and there's going to be a pretty big correlation between the two there um and now even from like the perspective of pressing now i'll probably be 20 to 30 degrees lower in terms of the elbow position um much stronger and the the ability to connect is still just the same it's just cues and habits that have changed Oh, Ryan, Ryan's lucky because he's come in, he's pretty young training age still, and he's, he knows all this stuff, and he's just going to coast through and get jacked without like any issues. Going to get to James's age, and I'm going to be fine. Yeah. <laughs> Long way to go. Yeah. Yeah. Right, yeah, Ryan, think, Ryan, go on, what are you going to say? Just that whole talk about, like, and I think this links to every single question that anyone asks in this realm in terms of if you have some kind of dogmatic rule or dogmatic kind of um, understanding of something and you haven't actually delved into it deeper like we will um, in the course like, um, that's where that's where issues arise like you get and it's so common like you get all of these kind of rules flying about and we just hear them and then think like don't even think twice like I know when I first started training and everyone else is the same you kind of listen to the biggest guy in the gym and he's like oh yeah let's, you got to do this and then you look at him he's like oh yeah, he's got a big chest let's, let's do that um, and then 10-15 years down the line you realise that um, that kind of repeated stress on the joints like James was saying um, is what deteriorates things and you might be able to do something short term that's that's not ideal and you won't really feel kind of a lot of negative impact from it and what you've got to understand is these things start coming through like years down the line so they come through from 
repeated exposure to these unnecessary joint forces that are ultimately then going to compile and um, come out the other end as an injury or as some kind of issue. So you've got to think long term. And people, if people want to hear an account of this, um, message uh, Larry Doyle. Yeah. <laughs> I, just, I just started working with him and, and his, you know, he's, he'll admit and he says this on his stories a lot that he's basically essentially broken his, his body to some degree because he, throughout his bodybuilding career, he disregarded these, these issues. And, and that, you know, now he's at a point where he's got to work around a lot of stuff. And it's a pain in the ass. Yeah. All you need to do is go and watch um, Ronnie Coleman's new documentary on Netflix. Yeah. And that was yeah. Jay. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Can I take the Indy 500 forever? Right. I'm going to let Ryan answer a question in full. You have the floor. Which grip would be the best? Best is in bold letters for lap training, <laughs> pronated, neutral, or supinated, or a variation of those. Okay. So this basically just confirms everything that I just said in terms of people thinking that there is one best way to do things and one best way for everyone to do things. Um, so the first consideration that you need to put in place is everyone is an individual. Everyone needs to be kind of assessed as an individual like we are. Um, and you need to make that realization that every, everything that you do in the gym should be customized to you, you and your body and, and, and your structure and your biomechanics. Um, so that's number one. Um, and then number two, so we're talking about the best grip for training the lats. Um, so you want to look at what is actually going to affect you placing low through those tissues um number one if pronation or supination of the wrist isn't going to um affect anything around the, the glenohumeral joint um directly but there could there could be some kind of issue if we were fixing ourselves into a degree of um shoulder external rotation or internal rotation which could be caused by you trying to say do a lap pull down with a straight bar with a supinated grip. Like you see guys doing um, like close grip, supinated grip lap pull downs and they're forcing them into, into forcing themselves into a, into a position that they can't naturally go through. And then they're trying to load that. Um, there's just going to be all kind of issues going on further down the line. Um, so as with any exercise, you can consider not only the structure that you're trying to train, but every single structure around that. Um, because everything is going to be, everything is going to be in unison, and one thing further down the chain is going to affect the thing that we're directly, directly trying to target. So, um, from a structural perspective and a kind of safety and efficiency perspective, like making sure that you're assessing what range you can get into, like we were talking about at the beginning, um, is is going to be essential here. But yeah, is there any other points that you want to bring up on that? Yeah, I'd say like if you, for people that want to get an idea of what Ryan says, if you put your hand, your arm overhead in the position you'd be like an underhand, but you know, uh, straight bar pull down, um, and then 
try and maximally supinate so try and point your your you know supinate so that your palm is pointing behind you in in line with what would you, you the position you'd need to be if you're gripping a straight bar most people don't actually possess that degree of like supination which is technically external rotation in that position but like you know let's 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 call it what it is people are talking about a supinated grip um you basically you know you have to match up does someone have the range of, of, of you know the available range of motion in their shoulder relative to their wrist and most of the time they don't um and it, you know this is where you know i've done a, i did that post on using d handles on on pull downs and um, because it permits a lot more freedom at the wrist and therefore freedom at the elbow freedom at the shoulder and kind of a, is a way to kind of generally get around that <laughs> um and um and i mean that that's taken off quite well like everyone's using that now <laughs> um but, it, but people notice it when you when you when they do it they, they stop getting these kind of persistent niggles that they were getting in their elbows because they were having to have this massive degree of compensation through all that chain of joints mm. the, the the prime um pull down and row at the previous gym james were, were those handles free moving or were they set um the chest supported plate loaded row was set the, the path of motion was not optimal on them um for the chest supported one um and then the pull down no the pull down one was was free right that was free but yeah the chest supported row was was set in a fixed position which wasn't really optimal for what we want because mm. primer brought out obviously this whole range where they're allowing for that movement now with all these attachment and handles, aren't they? Which is probably the first person that's actually thought about doing it in terms of manufacturing. I think Nautilus tend to do it. Um, and the, yeah, the, the Nautilus pull downs have them as well, they, don't they? they? Quite a yeah. few of their rows and stuff and pull downs have got it on Nautilus, haven't they? Yeah, they, those their handles they they kind of rotate further up, but they they will go with you, which is which is basically what you want. You want the the machine to move with you you don't want to have to find a way to move with the machine because that tends to be that leading to all issues yeah yeah that was good though i liked it but just to I say to summarize and give it a general rule staying in a neutral position that's relatively shoulder width um is always if you're not quite sure where to go with something is always going to be the best way yeah i think and then if you understand yourself or you've got a coach to work with, you understand what they're looking at, then you can adjust it potentially appropriately from there. But if you're unsure, then just sitting in that neutral shoulder position is, is always going to be probably the, the safest bet. And essentially, that's what putting D handles on those pull downs achieves. So if you, like, you know, if you put your hand up above your head like you would be on the pull down, you take a neutral position where your palms facing each other, that... You know, if you if you then move through the move the, the movement imagining you're doing it you'll be able to maintain that position pretty well which is essentially what it provides so a pair of three pound d handles is better than a 90 pound mag grip bar <laughs> <laughs> basically because yeah. you still like those mag grips um we're gonna get like shut down by mag the, the company but that you know they still they're, they're not bad, but they still have a you know fixed position for your wrist. And although yeah. they, you know, some of them are pretty good, you, you still end up with some degree of compensation on top of the fact that a lot of people don't actually have the strength in their 
finger flexors to hold that position. But the grips are wide as well on those, aren't they? They're like pretty big. Yeah, if you've got a, a you know, 55-year-old housewife yeah. who's training in the gym and you try and load her on one of them and she's got tiny hands, mm. you might run into issues. That's why I like the uh, the prime the prime attachments that they brought out with the little nodules in where you can just hook things hook a D handle onto them. It's sick because you've got so many different settings you can utilize. Trying to go the squat one, Cal. Well, I think because you've got nine foot long femurs, James, it might be interesting to talk about how you grew your legs back in the day <laughs> and then lost them. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Actually, actually, interesting. So, talk through your um, sporting background and your injury like history in terms of lower body mechanics, and then talk through the squat and then how you got around that in your own training. So, the question was thoughts on back squats when you have long femurs. But let's just talk about like squat mechanics and lower body development and the actual applicability of the squat in the first place. I think the actual question was thoughts on squat mechanics if you have the longest femurs in the world like James. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Short answer, don't squat. Yeah. Um, we haven't got enough time for me to go through all my years of injuries that I picked up before I really knew what I was doing with training. Um, when I literally forced myself to squat for 10 plus years. Um, but I think just 80, 90%, their fingers that I've, their figures that I've literally just pulled out my ass, but 80, 90% of people aren't built to squat. Um, our ability to squat is almost determined by the range of movement we have at the ankles, knees, hips, and spine. Um, within the combination of what is like segmental proportions. So when we look at the proportions of our tib fib, um, or the ankle movement, or even potentially the midfoot movement, um, and the relative sort of the floor to the knee. We've got to then look at that compared to the femur length, compared to the trunk length. And then when we're looking at the trunk length, that's really a combination of the, the spine length and where we're placing the bar and how much that bar is relative to our body weight. So you see there, there's quite a few things that we've got to even try and take into consideration um, rather than just saying, yeah, you can squat. Because if someone 100 kilos tried to squat with 20 kilos on their, on their back, they are the center of mass. But if that same person has the ability to squat 200 kilos at 100 kilo body weight, the bar is now the center of mass. And that will change totally how that squat looks. Um, so it's, it totally depends really from person to person on terms of how they're gonna do it, how it should look, what's an optimal position. But as I say, yeah, there's only such a small amount of people that are really designed to do it. And with that, that everyone who squats is going to be hip dominant. At very, very best, a tiny, tiny percent of people will be 50-50, but everyone else is going to be hip dominant. No one's going to be a knee dominant squatter. Um, if you really look at the mechanics of it, um, I say at very, very best, it's going to be 50-50, but it's always going to be loading the hips. So you've got to be built to do it. And I think like the available tools we have, whether it's pendulum squat, hack squat, leg press, leg extension, whatever it may be, we can get so much more bang for our buck with their movements and be locked in and stable um, and play sort of better tension through the quads and not compromise 
tissue structure, not compromised position, not compromised maybe loading through the through the lower back. Um, so if someone has got long femurs, rather than trying to force them into a squat, which I know myself I did for say 10 plus years and now I've got a fucked up left knee. Um, so and then the same turf toe turf toe is important to mention as well yeah. <laughs> there is things other structurally going on but I said dislocated my knee 10 plus years ago and uh, managed to say train through it and work through it but I think just still trying to force myself to squat and force myself to get into movements that my body wasn't designed to do um, got by at the time when I was competing and managed to sort of build some reasonable legs for my height um, but it was only after almost a, a stop competing that my structure just broke down. Um, and now I'm quite limited in what I can train. I can still train my quads, but it's very limited in what I can do there. Mm. Um, and I didn't learn in the early days when I was in my twenties. And it's only now that I say I'm not, I'm an, an old man that I've got to train with more sort of thought process and more awareness of joint positioning, joint alignment and everything rather than just, yeah, I enjoy squatting. So I want to do squatting. And that's so what so many people are like. They squatted when they're younger. They enjoy doing it. Um, and they want to do them big bro lifts that look impressive. But we're so much better, I say, lock, lock in a stable position where we can really focus on the muscles we want to work and want to develop rather than just trying to do generic movements that people have done for years but potentially, say, compromise their structure in the process. Yeah. And it just sums up that there's no movement that we have to do. So there's going yeah. to be people like, oh, we, we have to squat to build legs. Like, no, you don't. <laughs> like, I, did, I would disagree with what James said in the sense of when he said he's not designed to squat. Like, obviously, James can squat. What happens when he squats is that load gets placed through joints, you know, his joints in a very aggressive manner that <laughs> leads to a lot of issues. And that's what people are basically presented with. So you get people that... You know, they, um, you know, everyone can squat, but it, it's the, the downstream effect of that on your connective passive tissue the issue. Yeah, we're all designed to squat to sit on the toilet. Yeah. <laughs> not necessarily with load on our back. It all kind of comes down to that long-term risk to reward ratio. And like I know when taking on clients, you have people coming to you with this kind of emotional connection to certain exercises because of whatever preconceived idea they have built up from, from the past, but um, kind of educating the client on why that at this time for them may not be the most appropriate thing long-term um, is, is really important. Um, understanding that you as a coach have a responsibility to do what you think is best for the client not what they want to do all the time um, and that's kind of sometimes a hard bridge to, to to cross but I think if you kind of approach it in the right way and then make them kind of understand that you have their the, the best intentions at heart um, it, and don't allow those things to alter how you program someone is is really important and that, that brings back the what we mentioned about active range um, earlier mm -hmm. like where yeah, let's say, and actually Cal's just taken on a client that I actually helped out with a hip injury recently, um, like prior to him st her starting with Cal. And, um, you know, her, she can mechanically squat, deadlift, <coughs> fine. 
but what she had was a massive discrepancy in her range of hip flexion and abduction and internal rotation and external rotation between her right and left sides. And they're all down, you know, all the muscles involved in those, in generating those movements are going to be loaded in a squat. So for her, yes, mechanically she can squat, but she needed to dial it back and regress things. And she needed, she needs to, you know, work on those imbalances in a unilateral uh, way. So like keeping each side, you know, training each side individually, building that tolerance back up, you know, getting access back to those ranges before she then goes back in. And, uh, you know, this is the case that Ryan said, you know, the assessment strategies we use are, are so important to, to being able to design these sorts of things and like these programs for people. And, um, you know, you, know, you, you look at the, the assessment strategies that people use where they'll get people to do a body weight squat. And James mentioned just now that, you know, you, you get someone to do a body weight squat, they'll squat in a certain way. The minute you put a bar on their back that shifts the entire mechanics of that movement, you're looking at a completely different scenario. So, so it's, it comes down to it is definitely worth you know it's worth um, for every exercise professional to understand this sort of thing on a deeper level if you want to be better at your job, <laughs> basically. But yeah, it's um, first uh, course is in April, so just uh, send us. <laughs> <laughs> But yeah, it's um, fascinating stuff. I suppose that brings on, I mean, Cal, you can talk about, I just mentioned programming. Mm. So yeah, Cal can actually answer a question now. <laughs> you boys are doing a fine job. Yeah, but we'd say, um, there's a question on programming. Uh, how to structure a day of programming, activation, heavy loading. Oh, yeah. Put blood, put blood work, but I'm assuming he means blood flow. Unless, unless a day of programming. Yeah, blood, just, you need to get a Medishake's blood work uh, at the end of your workout. Yeah. Talking about Medishake's, there's some news coming soon. That's what we do with clients. We check the hormonal profile after every session. The first thing I'd say about activation is it's, um, <clears throat> it's something that's been made sexy over the last couple of years within the industry but we need to give context and make it applicable so activation can be as quick and as simple as possible pre-training but a we need to make it specific to the challenge we're just about to do uh, and b we don't want to be spending too long and too much effort on those to then take away and sap energy out of the actual sessions themselves um, and like the the individual that luke's speaking about now in terms of the activations that were given to her, they're like going to be specific to what's happening happening from a, a dysfunction perspective because she's been assessed and these things have been identified. So they're specific to address those. It's not just stuff fucking randomly thrown in, um, which is what typically happens. Um, but you'll you'll typically see like if you have a upper body session or lower body session, somebody's going to spend fifteen to twenty minutes activating these tissues. Realistically, when we look at how the nervous system is going to actually fire and work, you doing two or three warm-up sets is as activated that tissue just fine. Then you can crack on and train and actually do what you're, what you're there to do. So, you know, your, your activations and your pre-training warm-ups are just preparing you for the challenge and to maximally perform. And they can be done as quickly as possible as long as you're efficient and applicable with what you're doing. Um, like the biggest brunt, brunt of the, the workload for the day, if the goal is to accrue and regenerate tissue and create a stimulus which is going to create a positive adaptation is going to be exposing those tissues to mechanical loading and mechanical tension 
um, and covering all mechanisms of hypertrophy. Blood flow and cell swelling is going to be one of those, um, but we don't want that to be the whole workload for the day. So like the whole concept of progressively overloading your, in your training, that's progressive tension overload. We want that to be the main workload of the session. That's probably going to come first because if we do the cell swelling work first, it's going to be taking from the performance of those other movements. Um, and then typically working in more metabolic or rep ranges that are going to accumulate more metabolites later on in the session to essentially finish your job when you've already accumulated fatigue in those earlier lifts. Um, everyone agree? Yeah, maybe just not ads because obviously you're, you're talking about a lot of people have just got, I think, carried away within the industry in terms of activation work and you'll see people yeah. do sort of 20, 25 minutes of it. And if anything, what's more important almost is the, the orchestration of everything. So if we're doing a, a big pressing movement, it's, everything's got to be working together and in unison. Um, and if there's, if joint <coughs> health, um, tissue-wise, everything's in a good place, Potentially, there isn't the need to activate everything. Like, we just got to get on the movement and get warmed up. And, like, if you've been training for years and everything feels good and everything works well, then you can activate just by thinking about the muscle. So, sometimes it's more important to get on the movement and get everything working in unison together. Yeah. Um, get that whole orchestration of all the different muscles, muscles working rather than spending 20, 30 minutes activating and not actually training. Yeah, it's like me, me and Cal were a guest on a podcast recently, and we got onto this topic, and I, I was speaking about it on there. That you know, people, people kind of, often, you know, oftentimes shoot themselves in the foot with their activations, and and they do detract from the session, even by spending you know not a lot of time, because you got to consider if someone is in a pretty good state with regards to their training age, their training ability, their ability to generate tension, you know, like James said, their ability to orchestrate you know movement and muscular contraction around a joint the the nervous system is preparing you before you're even in the gym so when people are like driving to the gym and you know people that like say oh i'm getting nervous about my hack squats the day before you'll find that your nervous system is is like preparing you for that and that's basically what's you know what's creating that that anxiety in a sense and like but when you're driving to the gym you know, there will be huge changes that are occurring in terms of like blood pressure will be increasing, like sympathetic arousal will be increasing. And and then you go in the gym and you spend 10 minutes just focusing on something completely different. I mean, yeah, the, these mechas will still be present, but you may not, you may not take advantage of them in the same way. So if, if and I, I give people like warm up things to do, I call them like potentiating, uh, you know, potentiating sets, but I say to them, if you go to the gym and you're feeling insane, you're feeling amazing, you're ready to go. Don't don't waste your time doing it. Just crack on because you know. I, I say if you if you're if it's someone who really needs to do it, I'll say yeah, you know, make sure you do it. And if it's someone who and I say you know if you go to the gym, and you're feeling like these areas do need a bit of work, then do it. But if you if you get to the gym and you're ready to just go in and annihilate the session, then go in and annihilate the session. Yeah, it's a bit. Sure. Isn't it? But with with regards to the the programming side, like people that work with us know that we we well me me and Cal, I don't know James and Ryan like well, I know Ryan does but the blood the use of blood flow restriction stuff for the with regards to like the blood flow side of things and the metabolite um, accrual because there's quite a nice in research they found a pretty cool seems to be moderately unique to blood flow restrictive training 
in the sense of you what we find is there's like a the there's a, an upregulated ability to regenerate damaged muscle fibers and like when we and it seems more upregulated in response to blood flow restriction so like that's if i put that sort of stuff in it will be towards the end and, and with the idea of you know expediting the recovery process in terms of regenerating the damaged muscle fibers that we've just damaged on some of the heavier loading movements but like that's just my opinion and how i place it within training but i suppose that will add to that question yeah and that's yeah yeah anyway i suppose we got any other questions that's, that's i think that was all the questions that we that picked all the ones that were answered should we uh should we just drop some information on when and where the seminar is the first seminar yes go for it I don't, I don't know when it is, mate. <laughs> <laughs> we are lucky uh, enough to be able to use the amazing Ultimate Fitness in Birmingham, which is a yeah. pretty good location, in my opinion. Um, and we'll be, over the course of this year, there'll be phase one and phase two. Phase one is obviously the first one that's occurring. First two dates split into four days. Um, first two, well, the first full weekend uh, will be a theory-based weekend uh, on the 27th and 28th of April. The second weekend will be more of a practical uh, weekend, which will be on June the 8th and 9th. Um, and then phase two will essentially be advancing on from phase one with a little bit more detail in terms of the depths that we're going into on the key topics that will, will be applicable to enhance your knowledge um, on the areas that we discussed in, in, in phase one. Um, but there'll be a lot of kind of new sexy stuff in phase two that will excite all of you nerds out there listening to this that are already thinking I'm too good for phase one. You're probably not, but, um, <laughs> yeah, that's true. You will learn something. And I want like all the, both the, the phases, you know, we're, what we're big on is being able to deliver information that is, chock full of practical takeaways so we're not we're not just going to throw yeah. big words at you mm. we will throw big words at you but you'll understand it and know how to apply it yeah. mm. but I, I mean should we say what the topics we are so that people that listen to this are going to know before we announce it or should we save the topics uh yeah let's let's set now set now so basically on the theory weekend day one we're going to be covering the gastrointestinal system sleep circadian biology some of the nutritional implications surrounding those areas mindset and psychology day two is going to be female physiology training and recovery considerations for females nutritional strategy maximizing hypertrophy which is going to kind of follow on from day one as well be kind of a recap to some degree and then it'll be applying everything within the coaching practice as well which um is going to be pretty juicy and then day uh, weekend two so the practical weekend is going to be the basics of exercise mechanics, which um, is going to be extremely valuable. And luckily we have Jimbo on board for that one. The uh, lower body anatomy and exercise analysis will follow that. And then day two is going to be upper body anatomy, exercise analysis, applying it in a program design situation for maximizing hypertrophy and then data tracking with clients, which people like. So it should be rather juicy. It should be loads. Very very juicy um and the tickets uh will be available soon yeah the tickets i hope we're hoping to go and go on sale this week so. yeah 
just got some some business stuff to sort out. Yeah. Um, I think that's probably it, isn't it? Yeah. Cool. That was lovely. That was good. We'll have to, and if if this is well received, which I know it will be, we'll have to do like a regular roundtable discussion with the boys. Yeah. Definitely look forward to it. Good. Some uh, other news. Obviously, you all know that we've um, recently been affiliated with Supplement Needs. Any of your supplement requirements, you should head onto their website and use our discount code because uh, that's great for all parties. Um, <laughs> and also, we are now um, affiliated with MediChecks. So we should be able to have um, a nice discount for you all to use for all of your blood work requirements especially when everyone's fucked coming out of prep in a few months yeah. um yeah very 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 useful and lucky to have both those people on board as well we'll be um dean's gonna be on i believe this week yeah so dean for supplement needs talking about thyroid which actually i'd put an announcement out about speaking guests this week and I didn't bloody include him on it. <laughs> That's good. Just include him tomorrow. But talk about the other guests then. So what what we got lined up? So we got um the owner of Ra Optics um is coming on on Wednesday. That is yet to be hundred percent confirmed but he's definitely coming on. Yeah. Um he's basically gonna talk about melatonin, the power of light and dark, um sleep optimization strategies, blue blockers because obviously they sell them. Um, but they are like the best blue blockers in the world, pretty much. Um, and he's a very, very smart guy. Um, mm. Got a very interesting well, actually. And then, um, and then we've also got next week um, Amelia Thompson um, coming on. She's a very smart lady, and I managed to connect with her this weekend. I was up in an event, and she was there. And um, she's a uh, Basically, going to come on to talk about um, some of the stuff surrounding mindset psychology, females contest prepping, and some of the strategies she implements with her clients with regards to optimizing mindset relationships with food and stuff like that. So that will be very valuable. Yeah. Mm. So three juicy podcasts to come, and we will will definitely for the rest of the year now keep to to once per week um, for for potties because. Uh, I think la- I think at the end of last year we were at least once a week, weren't we? So it's yeah. keeping it up now. And then Cal- now we've got four of us. Even more good stuff to come. I got too busy. Yeah, I got too busy. I got too busy. Yeah, it's, it's all my fault. <laughs> uh, yeah. so right. Thanks for joining us, uh, Ryan and James. Pleasure. It's a pleasure. Where, where can people follow you? Because if people aren't, then yeah, what are your Instagram tags? Uh, mine's currently James Sutton PT, but it will be changing. Um, yes, it will be, so. won't it, James? <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> At this moment in time, it's James Sutton PT. Um, but yeah, in the very near future, it will be changing. And what's yours, Ryan? It is just Ryan Hook underscore coach. Boom. Nice. Follow James, the new one's going to be the grander muscle mentor, is it? <laughs> <laughs> I thought it was going to be. The gingerbread muscle men. <laughs> wizard. Yeah. Right. Lovely. Thanks for uh, joining us, guys. And um, we will, uh, yeah, we'll speak to you all soon. I'll pick this up tonight. Cool. All right. Pleasure. Goodbye.